0: From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire.
1: All right, Steve. So we just wrapped up episode 16. Of campfire conversations. Oh, that was,
0: that was awesome. Like what? We've had some pretty cool guests on uh, in our limited run here, and we we talked to Christian Schadendorf. That's, that's right. How you yeah. Pronounce his last name. And he's in, he's in Germany. So like what? Eight nine hours ahead. That's right. I think he's nine hours awesome. ahead. Yeah,
1: yeah. He, as people who listen to the podcast will learn, he did live in Canada for a number of years, and that's how we met. So I I, I know Christian fairly well. Uh, but yeah, he's a very educated man. He's got his PhD in forestry and, uh, -hmm. uh, but as he told us, he just retired. So that's exciting for him. But Christian is a a really avid hunter and fisherman. And, uh, he was able to, to really talk about the way wildlife is managed. uh, Game Mm -hmm. species in particular is managed in, in Germany. And it's, it's so much different than in British Columbia, isn't it?
0: Oh, it totally is. But we didn't get into it. How did you guys meet?
1: Well, as you know, I'm an an optometrist, and he was a patient, and and oh, he actually okay. invited me on a sheep hunt. I he's actually the reason I got to sheep hunting. We, you know, I'd see him as, as a patient. We'd always talk hunting, and then one year he came in and, and said, "Hey, my my sheep hunting partners bailed on me, um, and it was late in the summer. Would you like to come? Right? And it was it was too late of notice for me. I already had other commitments, so I couldn't go. And I said, but I said, you know, I'll, I I'd always wanted to go. I just you know I just hadn't quite done it. And uh, right. So anyway, he. He, he told me, invited me for that year, and I said, I can't make it. I said, but I, I really want to go, so let's do it next year. And he goes, sure. Yeah. And so I was literally probably calling him up every few months saying, hey, we're still going sheep hunting, right? We're still going sheep hunting, right? <laughs> Making sure that he was, uh, you know, hadn't forgotten about me. And, and he didn't. So my, my first stone sheep hunt was with Christian uh, up in northern British Columbia, and we had a great hunt. We didn't get a ram that year, uh, but we, we we learned a lot. We found a great area. So the next year we, we went a little f- deeper into the area that we'd hunted the unsuccessful year, and uh, we actually both got rams. We had a, you know, oh, it wow. was, uh, I think I got mine on day two, and he's, he got his on day eight or nine, both nice rams, and uh, we saw so many sheep. It was just one of the best hunts of my life, actually, and uh, mm-hmm. but I, I'll honestly say, I mean, I, I'm sure I would have gotten out on a sheep hunt either way, but there's always something that gets the guy out on his first sheep hunt, and and, and Christian right. was the guy who got me going, and I am indebted to him for that.
0: Yeah, and forged great friendship, and that you can see still going on years later. Because he said he's been in Germany since what, 20? Yeah, for sure. And back again. So yeah, we keep in touch, you know, as, as, as
1: guys do, which is infrequently, but we still fire yeah, yeah. emails back and forth now and again, and send pictures and that sort of thing. And and uh, yeah, there, there's a saying, and I've said this before: there are there are brothers through blood, and there are brothers through sweat. And he's certainly a brother through exactly. sweat. We've, we've had some interesting times, and you know, we've we've had the two o'clock in the morning. You know, building the fire to keep the grizzly out of camp situations. We've we've done we've done it all in the north, and and uh, you know he's been a great partner up there, and, and uh, I'm really hopeful I can uh, have a few more adventures with him yet. Once uh, we can get our our schedules aligned a little bit better.
0: Exactly. Again, it shows that connection that hunting brings. Right. It's, it's the, the first time you went out, there there was nothing that uh, was put in the freezer, but that that connection stayed, and the friendship was built off of there, and that the, the sense of adventure and the chase continued like how long you guys been friends now
1: it's been at least 10 years i would say oh that's a good question i mean we've known each other probably i don't actually remember the year we went on our first hunt it's probably been it was at least a dozen years ago maybe more exactly Um, so but yeah i'd I'd known him a couple years before that so yeah over over a dozen years And,
0: and guaranteed you could jump off the plane or he could jump
1: off the plane it'd be just like you have... Oh, absolutely, be, yeah. Right? No, I mean, if if he it showed just... up on my doorstep at any time, any time of the day or night, he's he's welcome in, you know, and I'm sure it'd be the same on his end. And, and you know, that's mm-hmm. the thing. It's, it's uh, you you know, when you're out in in wilderness with somebody and you're relying on each other and, and having these tremendous adventures together, there is a bond that's formed that, I think in general, as long as you're reasonably compatible, is going to stand the test of time. And, uh, you exactly. know, Christian's such an easy... He's an easier-going guy than I am by far. Like, I, I can get... I could take my hunting no pretty damn serious and, uh, Christian's always easy going and, and uh, he's, he put up with me, which is great. So, uh, yeah, we, we've, we have good friendship. Oh
0: that's, awesome. oh, that's awesome. So yeah, it's, this is a conversation that talks about, uh, the contrast and similarities between North American wildlife management and German wildlife management. And I was absolutely floored at some of the stuff I learned in here. So I, I think we should just let our listeners get to it and they can, uh, learn as much as we did, hopefully, and uh, have some fun with it. I agree. So here we, go. here we go. Off to episode 16 of the Campfire Conversations with Christian Schadendorf. Enjoy.
1: Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Okay, here we are, episode 16 of Campfire Conversations with our guest, uh, Christian Schadendorf. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Glad to be here, Jonathan. Yeah, it's it's been a long time. Uh Christian and I uh, actually know each other reasonably well. We uh we've had a few big adventures in the mountains of northern British Columbia in the past and uh, had some yeah, had some good times for sure. Uh but uh let let's learn a little bit more about you Christian. So, you're you're in Germany now, but uh you you were living in Canada for an, a number of years. So, tell us just a little bit about your your journey like uh, I, I know you you did your uh, schooling and, and uh, you ended up with a PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I, uh, I was born and grew up in Germany. Um, and I uh, when I was a youth, I really uh, enjoyed hunting and uh, was uh, interested in anything about uh, the outdoors and nature. So I went into forestry in Germany, and uh, um, after taking my degree, I had an opportunity to go to UBC and uh, grabbed it. I got a scholarship, and uh, it was supposed to last one year, but it, it was so much fun. I stayed for another year, uh, obtained a master's degree there, and wanted to stay in BC, actually. Um, but then back then, I couldn't uh, immigrate. Uh, immediately. So I went back to Germany, finished my schooling here, started to work here, and uh, also did a PhD in Vienna, actually. And after that, uh, the timing was good. I was still interested in coming to Canada, and um, it was at a time in the late... 70s early 90s actually when uh, the rules around forestry really tightened up uh, in BC and they were desperately looking for foresters so that was my opportunity to actually uh, come and and uh, immigrate and uh, once i was here i i worked in nelson for a consulting company for a while and then i ended up uh, managing a A large piece of private timberland, uh, 56,000 hectares, um, which was a dream uh, assignment, a dream job. So all in all, I uh, stayed in B.C. for about 20 years. And uh, eventually, that large piece of property was sold to the Nature Conservancy of Canada. And uh, we did manage it for them for a few years, but then they basically didn't want to have any trees uh, come to harm anymore. And uh, they basically told us uh, we were in excess of their staff needs. And uh, at that time, uh, there was an opportunity again, uh, developing for me, uh, buying and selling timberland uh, Canadian timberland to German buyers basically and uh, so I uh, traveled over to my original home country more often and eventually settled here again and uh, uh, have been working here until uh, last week actually now I'm formally retired happily retired
1: well congratulations that's the uh, a well-deserved retirement for sure so now how how long have you been in germany now i've kind of lost track of time you when did you move back permanently in 2012 so 10 years ago 10 years ago wow does time ever fly yes that's that's hard to to believe so now i know uh outside of work your 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 major interests are are the you know the outdoors hunting fishing that sort of thing so tell us i'm really curious uh as to how wildlife is managed in Germany and maybe Europe you know, at, at large uh, versus how we manage wildlife uh, or the lack thereof, wildlife management in British Columbia, uh, can you, can you kind of give us a bit of a, a detailed rundown of, of, of overall wildlife management in Germany?
2: Yeah, I'll try. It's, uh, comparing it is going to be somewhat difficult because the uh, circumstances are so different. Um, Number one, Germany and Europe as a whole has a lot less forests as a percentage of the total land base. Most of it is farmland by far. And uh, the intensive farming in Europe has, or the farming has intensified over the last decades And uh, to the point that uh, wildlife populations are benefiting from all this uh, increased uh, browse available crops, farming, farmed crops, that uh, their numbers, for the most part, ungulates anyways, have uh, multiplied and have become a serious management issue because they uh, cause a lot of dam- crop damage. And uh, so here the hunting has more and more become a call over the last decades, uh, more than anything else. Now hunters are uh, not so well. So it is a type of management, but it's uh, mostly about getting the numbers in check and making sure the populations don't get out of control. And so it doesn't require a lot of uh, data gathering and and close observation of most ungulate populations because you will hear from the farmers that there are too many. And uh, uh, so the task is to keep the herds in check. Um, Another important difference is that uh, here the right to hunt is not owned by the Crown or by the state um, as it is in BC or in Canada. It is actually owned by the landowner on his land. So every landowner has the right to hunt on his land if and only if He has a minimum size of his property, and normally it's around 75 hectares. So if I own 75 hectares, I can hunt on my own land. If I own less, which most people do here, by far most people, um, I have to pool my land with other landowners until I reach 250 hectares. And then I can lease those 250 hectares or however much it may be in the end uh, to a hunter or to a group of hunters. So it's all about, so the whole country is basically divvied up in little hunting territories. Uh, Most or typically a community or municipality uh, all the landowners in one municipality or in one community will pool their land and then lease the right to hunt, uh, their individual rights to hunt, on that total property to whoever is interested in leasing it. Um, so on that property, the people that lease the hunting right there have exclusive hunting rights. Um for all huntable species. And uh, so it's very different from your system with uh, the crown having the hunting rights and basically utilizing it by issuing licenses and uh, monitoring wildlife populations and, and determining how many licenses to be issued and things like that. Here, it's very different. Every... Every hunter who's leasing his own territory has to basically manage himself and has to make sure that, uh, and by law he's required to, make sure that uh, all the huntable species are managed properly and he cares properly for them. So it's much more responsibility on the individual hunter than in BC where you just go to the gas station, buy a tag, and off you go wherever you want to. Uh, We here um, have usually a small area that we pay an annual lease to use for hunting, and it can get quite expensive depending on how desirable the species are. On the, in that lease, if, if you have, uh, for instance, red deer, which is comparable to elk, um, the lease gets expensive. If you just have rabbits and some pigeons and stuff, it's a lot less. Um, you are also immediately responsive or have to, have to answer to the landowners because they grow crops and they will let you know in no uncertain terms if they feel there's too much damage because you are responsible. You're leasing from them. So they are in a position of power, if you will. They are the landlord. And uh, they will basically tell you um, to increase the numbers if they get out of hand. On the other hand, is the government that does get involved and for the uh, the larger ungulates uh, that are um, not so frequent, and uh, like red deer and fallow deer and, and some other species, mouflon, which is a kind of sheep, um, the government actually does issue uh, management plans. They uh, want you as a lessee to supply numbers, count, and basically say I have in my area, let's say a hundred animals and uh, the government will issue a quota to you to make sure that you're not shooting too many or too little. But um, typically these leases run from nine to 12 years, so Most hunters have a strong incentive to not overhunt because they always uh, like to look into the future. And the fewer they, the fewer animals they shoot now, the more they will have in the future. If they hunt too hard and shoot too many, then obviously the population is going to suffer and suffer and, and their opportunities are lower and down the road. Um, it's also a strong incentive for trophy-based management uh, because within nine to twelve years, obviously, you can grow, you can afford to let uh, uh, bulls, stags, as we call them here, grow old enough to 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 grow a, a proper trophy, a good trophy, and uh, so you're you're. Taking management bucks, uh, bucks that show below average antler development, and uh, and you will pardon or not shoot uh, ones that show potential to uh, to grow old and and uh, have a big rack. Um, since the hunting rights are exclusive, you don't have to worry about anybody else coming into your territory and shoot that bull. Um, because you are the only one with the exclusive right to hunt there, so you can afford to let animals go because you know you will see them again. And uh, particularly, um, this is a quite an enjoyable feature because I recall my dad who uh, who would go out every every night at dusk and. Uh, and look after his roe deer, which is the most frequent deer here in Germany. Um, over a million get killed every year. That's how, how common they are. Uh, a small deer of 50 pounds, roughly, um, but they're everywhere. So um, they are very popular for, for uh, game species. And my dad would go out every night at dusk and and sit at various locations at his tr- on his tree stands. Of course, you can also afford to put up tree stands because it's your exclusive area. Nobody else is allowed to use them. Nobody else is is using them. So, um, it, and since you have this area for a few years, you can invest some money into infrastructure you you can also invest and many people do or most people do uh invest in feed plots uh invest in in uh, even feeding stations in the winter time when when uh, should there be a harsh winter and and to prevent winter kill and starvation so it's it's worth doing that and uh my dad would go out every night and he would, after a while, he would know all the various bucks. He would recognize them because he had seen them many times um, each evening and subsequent, at subsequent nights. And of course, they all have uh, their special antler characteristics and you would be able to to uh, recognize them and and that is not unusual at all. He would, we would talk about bugs that we had seen and we would know which ones we were talking about and then we would start speculating how old they might be, whether they are for their age below average or whether we should let them live and get, let them get older for a few more years. So those type of discussions go on, and then eventually you, you decide, oh, I think that buck there, I've seen him now for three years. I think he is he is five years old. I think we should take him this year. And so you could and and you could rely on these bucks being there year after year. You would, since their antlers, always usually retain their characteristics one way or the other. They may get bigger and things, but but the the individual shape and form quite often remains the same over the years. So you can, it's almost like a, well, you could call it a zoo. You know, you could manage individual animals and you still can, obviously. And uh, with red deer, um, maybe the biggest difference because um, they are comparable to elk. And as you know, I've also hunted elk uh while in BC. And uh, here we believe that they, uh, or not only we believe, there's evidence that uh, the biggest trophy they were between age 11 and 13. Uh, That's when their trophy gets the biggest. So you manage red deer here for some bulls, obviously not all of them, uh, but a percentage of bulls to reach that age before you actually finally harvest them with a huge uh, rack. Then at that time, and I, I, I always uh, was a bit disappointed in BC that uh, the hunting pressure is such that uh, a typical bull in BC gets killed in his second, third, fourth year. That's it, and the full potential is never really realized and uh, obviously they are nice big balls and if you find an old one that's a a rare bonus but uh, it seemed to me that most of them get killed as soon as they are six by six uh, which they usually reach in the third year in the west kootenai anyway um so yeah i that's what what spontaneously comes to mind i could go on but Maybe well, you want to ask I, I have, Yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I do have some questions, actually. Uh, so you were talking about, you know, paying money to lease uh, hunting areas. Yeah. So how, how difficult is it? Say some young person is interested in becoming a hunter in Germany, and doesn't come from a hunting family, it doesn't live on a farm. How difficult would it be for that person to be able to hunt like what would be the what would be the steps that person have to go through and is it something the average German could do if they really wanted to
2: yeah it is not as easy as it is in bc um you're quite right about that particularly around the big cities um everybody wants to hunt in the big cities there's lots of hunters and uh, but overall you should also keep in mind that hunters in germany are very few people it's uh as a percentage of the population, it's only 0.2 or 0.3. So you, you start with a very small number. One of the reasons being that, uh, taking the hunting exam is hugely involved. It's a, it's a nine month course, three times a week. And it's, uh, a, a tough, a really a tough exam, written oral practice, uh, shooting uh gets uh, also tested shooting skills and it we and that uh, weeds a lot of people out unless you are really super committed and uh but as you say that that is a problem for somebody who doesn't have any connections um and doesn't have a lot of money it's uh, difficult to break into it the proper or the way to do it is um, to, uh, for instance, to get a dog, train a dog, and uh, so you get into touch with other dog, with other hunting hunters with dogs, and get get to know others. And if they see that you have a good dog, you're always uh, in demand because. Uh, Hunting uh, dogs are uh, also a requirement. If you have a hunting lease, you have to have on your lease a, a, a dog with proven skills, like it has to, has to do the field trials and stuff, because uh, people here are very strict about following up on shots, uh, on so-called missed shots or on wounded game. Uh, so if, if you have a dog that can can do these things, um, immediately you are of interest to other hunters who may have the money and the connections to obtain a lease but are not dog doggy people or don't have a good dog. Another thing is uh, you go to the shooting range where all the hunters are. you socialize there, you you, you acquire good shooting skills. immediately people will, Take note and say, "Hey, you know, I, uh, you are a good shot. I, I like to uh, invite you." That's the another feature is that since everybody has these leases, and the hunting here is also a very social, uh, social activity um, because of the exclusivity. You can invite other people on your territory to hunt, and so people invite each other all the time, because I I may have chamois in my mountain hunt and somebody else has a boar, but I don't have boar in the mountains, but somebody in the lowlands has. So you invite him for your chamois and he invites you back for a boar hunt. So there's a lot of that going on. And uh, so people it's customary to invite people that you like or that you find interesting or that can offer something else. Sometimes it's also business. Uh, Hunting here is uh, uh, considered the most elegant way uh, to corrupt people um, with hunting invitations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that is a valuable commodity, hunting invitations. And, uh, and also, um, there are, uh, driven hunts are quite common here because they are very effective at culling herds. And for these driven hunts, you need, uh, more than one or two, three hunters. You need 10, 15. The state forest, who also uh, puts up, manages their own, uh, for uh, their own lands, um, they hold lots of driven hunts, uh, and uh, they hold hunts with 70, 80, up to 100 uh, shooters. So there you actually do have an opportunity, and the State Forest is one place where you can go and get a, uh, not a license, but you can get permission for your own small little lease, 75 hectares. Um, they are very concerned about equity and distribution of opportunity and things like that. And that is typical, the uh, the starting point for, for young hunters. They go to the state forest and, and get a small lease there for little money. And they have to shoot five deer every year. And then every additional deer they get, the lease payment gets reduced uh, to create an incentive to hunt hard. And uh, another thing you have to keep in mind that the, the venison, the meat, the game meat, uh, uh, belongs not to the shooter, but to the person who leases the hunting rights. So when people get invited to hunt, they they get to hunt and they get to shoot and they get the trophy, but they never get the meat unless the uh, – the lessee donates it to him or gives it to him as a gift. But since again, these hunting rights are leased and controlled, um, uh, venison can be sold and every lease owner sells their venison. Everything they can't eat themselves, they will sell. And it's uh, obviously it's much better meat than beef or chicken or pork. So it commands a much better price and it helps paying for the lease, the
1: sale so, of the meat. So the people, like say you're an odd hunter that wants to buy some roe deer meat, where do you buy that? Then you go directly to the landowner or is that distributed in a in like a butcher shop?
2: No, uh, the butcher shops um, usually don't have it anymore because they they have a regulation in place now that a butcher shop has to decide either they butcher Domestic animals or wild animals, but they can't mix them anymore. So what you typically do, you go to the hunter, and they all have an internet presence, and uh, and uh, you can uh, uh, you can buy purchase directly from the hunter. And uh, there's also some uh, professional outfits, some commercial outfits that buy game meat like whole animals in the in the uh in the fur or in the feather and uh buy it from hunters from less lessies from from lease owners and then they would butcher it and uh, they would have a,
1: a like a real
2: butcher or they would have a, a a little sales place where where you could go and and purchase it
1: well, yeah, that's that's very different than here where, you know, once the animal's on the ground and tagged by the hunter in North America, that's your animal, right? Yes. Nobody can really yeah. take that from you as long as it was legally no, harvested. That's right. Now, okay, well, that's really interesting. So given that the, you know, the, the rights to hunt are private, essentially in, in Germany, other than on the state lands, yeah. is are there hunting seasons or can you shoot deer any time of the year or game any time well, of
2: the year? Well, there are hunting seasons, but they're very liberal uh, that's one thing that always bugged me in in B.C. or in Canada that the uh, seasons were so short. That's why I had to take up fly fishing because there was no hunting in the summer, so I had to <laughs> had to find something else to do. Um, and I don't regret it. It's a wonderful thing, fly fishing. I I loved it. Um, no here the hunting seasons are quite long. Roe deer, I mentioned already. Um, the bucks start on in some states on April 1st and go to January 31st. So they're 10 months, basically. They only have two months wow. uh, where nobody shoots at them. Um, of course, females, uh, does and, and fawns and calves and cows are shorter. They usually start in August, but also go to the end of January. And uh, that's pretty much true for ungulates. Small game, pheasant, hare, uh, pigeon, usually in the fall for, I, I'd say, starting ducks start on September 1st, um, just like BC, and go till the end of January. Uh, hares, pheasants, and those uh, woodcock, um, they start around October 1st and till the end of January.
1: Okay, so given that a large number of ungulates need to be harvested in order to manage the populations, are, are more most people shooting females or are most people shooting males? Yeah,
2: you have to shoot females, otherwise you won't be able to control the population. Remember also, we don't have any large carnivores, although I have to qualify that now a little bit because we have, uh, for the last 10 years, all of a sudden, uh, we have huge, huge numbers of wolves, um, which is uh, absolutely crazy in a tightly, densely populated place like Germany. Uh, but we have regions here now that uh, have the highest wolf density in the world. Um, part of the reason wow. for that is obviously that uh, we have a lot of ungulates but it also because we have a lot of livestock and uh, uh, so there's lots of uh, food for them around. Yeah, Easy the
1: wolves food. don't necessarily differentiate between domestic nope. uh, and No, A they wildlife, prefer
2: yeah. domestic because they tend to be fenced in and don't run so fast. And uh, yeah, they don't have
0: that prey instinct to run from. That's right.
2: So, uh, uh, but we don't have bears. We have no coyotes. We have no cougars. We end up to, or in large parts of Germany, we still don't have any wolves. Um So that all means, as I said, um, incredible food resource and availability for them in intensively farmed country, um, no predators to speak of, no winters to speak of. That's another very important difference. Um, in BC with your heavy with your severe winters, you get a lot of winter kill. We get zero winter kill naturally. We get very little snow and that little bit of snow that we used to get now with climate change, we, we hardly get any at all. So there's no winter kill and there's food year round for them available on the fields because the farmers basically now keep their land in one kind of a, one sort of crop after another. There's hardly a time when there is no crop on the fields so they have year round food resources uh plenty so they reproduce um accordingly and if you uh, if you like my dad still did in his generation or my granddad they would not shoot females but that was at a time before intensive agriculture had evolved that was at a time when there were still harsher winters here but um, for the last, I'd say, 40, 50 years, it's completely not only accepted, it's total routine and nobody thinks about it. Um, and that's what these big driven hunts are about. They're, they are about to uh, cull calves, does, cows, fawns, everything.
1: Yes. So overall, in your estimation, Christian, would you say – wildlife overall, both uh, you know, huntable species, non-huntable species are are doing fairly well in Germany?
2: Yeah, the ungulates are doing well um, so much so, and that's what I mostly refer to today, so much so that uh, they uh, can become a problem obviously. Um, Boar in particular is a concern because uh, as you know now and Canada and the U.S., uh, boar being such a nuisance. Um, Of course, they've always been here, but not in the numbers that we have them here now. Um, And uh, other species uh, have usually, uh, other species that are doing well are the small predators, um, foxes, badger. And uh, We also have a bunch of new invasive small predators, um, particularly raccoon that is not native to Europe, but has now basically expanded its range all over Europe. Not in the density you have them, but, uh, but they're here. And we have raccoon dogs. I don't know whether you're familiar with those. Um, they have become they have um, invaded uh, Europe in very very short time period and are now everywhere and in numbers like they well,
1: are, I, I, i'm a bit ignorant what what is a raccoon dog I haven't heard that one yet um it's it almost looks like
2: a raccoon but it's it, it's a bit of, it's a little different <laughs>
1: And, and that's a North American species originally. No, that's
2: the Asia, East Asian species.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, I'd, I'd heard of that one. Okay, so yeah, oh, that's interesting. That's uh, it's a, it's really remarkable how many species have uh, been uh, you know invasive over the last century with uh, the human travels yeah. and cargo and food. And, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, we're seeing
0: raccoons and skunks up here in the middle of BC, and they've never been here. Right. in I've been here 15 years and now getting skunks on my trail cameras and seeing them in the in the bush. Yeah. So they're moving. One question I got regarding the wolves is we see it here in British Columbia. There's a, a large movement of people that uh, we'll say put them up on a pedestal and they don't want them hunted or managed. What's, what's the attitude towards them there in Germany?
2: It's like that. And. Even more so extreme, actually, uh, because wolves had been extirpated from Germany 200 years ago by people that wanted to save their livestock, obviously. And uh, uh, there are historical records that show how the guys that shot the last wolves, they were heroes. They, they were celebrated in the newspapers and they were given rewards by the government. And now, when the first wolves uh, invaded from the east, from Poland, basically, um, immediately the whole greenish scene uh, in Germany was basically shouting, "Welcome! Don't touch them! It's about the best that could have ever happened!" And uh, and that is, and these people have a lot of sway in Germany here. These, yeah. uh, more than in BC, where at least outside of Vancouver and Victoria, there's still a rural population that has some connection to the natural processes. But here, most of the population is urban or semi-urban, and they all believe this. Yes, about wolves, and as you say, they put them on a pedestal, and here it's a very high pedestal. We have now a uh, confirmed number of about 2,000 wolves in a country that is a third of BC, but it has, what, uh, 30 times the population or something? so it, it creates gigantic problems for any kind of livestock keeping uh, because mm-hmm. they love sheep and uh they they will kill not just one in a flock but they will basically rip the guts out of all of them mm-hmm. in the flock and when the next uh, the next day the farmer comes and finds 10 dead ones, 30 with guts hanging out and, and bleeding and, and, but still alive. And another 20, um, with other injuries, uh, trying to escape, getting caught in the fences, uh, breaking legs, um, drowning in, in ditches where in their panic they try to, to jump across and things like that. So I tell you for livestock, keeping people, it's a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And uh, But those people are in a minority. The majority voters live on the fourth floor in downtown somewhere, and they just love the idea that there are wolves out there, and they don't have to deal with the consequences, so they don't give a flying... So, yes, about so it. For the, they say, oh, the government should compensate you here. You know, we throw some money at you and then shut up, go away. We need the wolves here. The wolves are the best thing that could have ever happened. We are, we are becoming a more natural, wild country and blah, blah, blah.
1: So, if a farmer, sh- like say a farmer, hears a ruckus out in his pasture and, and there's a pack of wolves killing sheep, can he legally kill those wolves? To protect no, his sheep? oh
2: no. He goes to jail right away. That's about the biggest offense you can you can commit in Germany is killing a wolf. It's so you just hugely, you just got to. Little... It's, it's hugely protected, like by European law, German law, what net whatever, uh, and they always suspect hunters uh, in public or uh, the media always suspect hunters of quietly killing them. And there may be some of that going on, but um, but everybody, most hunters are so frightened. Uh, of being caught and losing their hunting license and going to jail that uh, nobody touches them. The number one uh, source of mortality is is traffic, uh, car collisions. Vehicle collisions kills about 10% of the population every year.
1: Yeah, well, I yeah, mean, we I think gen- Ger- Germany is the, the most… Highways
2: everywhere. Yeah, I guess the I guess it's the most densely eroded country yeah. in the world. Sorry?
1: I said, isn't Germany the most densely roaded country in the world? Like, Yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And
2: that's uh, not good wow. for wolves. And uh, that's the only hope we have.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, obviously, uh, you know, hunting of wolves isn't on the table at all for their management. What is the, uh, you know, general consensus amongst the average German toward hunting in general?
2: Um, it depends who you ask. Uh, the the green movement or the the, the the green clubs or whatever you want to call them uh, they always publish um, polls that somehow uh, discredit hunters and hunting but uh, that doesn't seem to be accurate uh, the uh, the uh, hunting associations and I say more objective or rural, uh, not rural, uh, objective, neutral media uh, outfits that poll people on their attitude towards hunting. Usually it comes out that 80% of the population is supporting hunting and understands that game herds need to be managed and understand that Not only are they being managed, but they're also conserved and preserved by hunters because hunters, due to this system of leases, have an interest that those animals are doing well because otherwise you won't have any hunting opportunities. And particularly those that are not benefiting from intensive farming. um, Of course, intensive farming also is bad for some animals. pheasants. Uh, for instance, they have hardly a chance or, or uh, Hungarian partridge that used to be native to all of Germany and used to occur here in huge numbers. They're almost on the brink and there's no hunting season for them anymore. And uh, so as a lessee, I'm responsible for those species too. And I, I have to manage for them by providing food, by controlling predators, trapping, all those type of things. Again, trapping is not a licensed uh, pursuit either. It's part of your hunting right. If, if you lease an area, you are also exclusively entitled to trap there, which is mostly done for predator management. It's not done for,
1: for um, fur. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So it's it's to me it seems unlikely that uh, you know hunting would ever be banned in Germany, given the fact that you guys have to call millions of animals just to keep population stable, right? So yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's uh, it seems like you you guys are in a good position to have continued hunting. Although I imagine the you know the anti hunting types have the fantasy that wolves could just fill the role of hunters and disseminate across the country. Oh Yeah,
2: they are constantly added, and there is. A, a German chapter of PETA here, um, and they always get media attention left and right, and, and the media types love it, right, and try to stir up controversy. But in the end, they haven't really made uh, big inroads uh, because sooner or later, somebody will come up with the uh, one justification is controlling crop damage. The other one is also, which um, you also have as an issue, I think, is controlling um, disease outbreaks in the wildlife population. You have chronic wasting diseases and things like that. Uh, One example here is uh, uh, African swine fever, which was uh, which uh, usually occurred in Africa, but then somehow it got uh, transported to uh, uh, somewhere in the Black Sea, Georgia or somewhere. And from there, it's taken off, and it's basically uh, coming through Russia and from the Eastern Eastern Bloc countries and has now arrived in Germany. It's highly infectious, and it… And when the domestic pork industry gets hit, it's a gigantic economic loss because Germany is also the world's largest exporter for pork, mostly to China. I know in North America, nobody uh, touches it, but in Europe, it's popular meat, and and in Asia, it's the most popular meat. So it is a billion-dollar industry that gets hurt uh, if uh, domestic swine domestic hogs uh, get infected. So our job, or the hunter's job, is clearly to reduce the numbers of wild boar to lower the risk of infection. And uh, in fact, they are so serious about it that for the first time, Germany allowed uh, night vision uh, equipment um, and night scopes, basically, to uh, to shoot boar, which uh, was ethically, uh, up to now, uh, un- totally unpalatable to the vast majority of hunters. You know, night hunting could be done, but only by moonlight or snow, but not with uh, artificial, you know, with technology, with enhanced uh, vision, night vision uh, technology.
1: Oh, well, yeah, that's interesting. I know in the united states at least in many states you can use night vision technology for hunting boar and in fact many states now hunt them from helicopters just because the you know there's just tens of millions of them and and their economic uh implications are huge Uh, i have a good friend who lives in sweden and about six months ago she was posting some pictures on social media of her yard um which was just completely plowed up by wild boar and uh she, uh, I, I, she's actually, she's actually currently visiting Canada and, and, but we've talked a bit about this and she, uh, said there's hunting clubs there that they contact to try to manage these boar. So, I mean, that's just a direct, you know, uh, link between the hunter and a landowner trying to solve a problem. Right. Which I thought yes. that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well,
0: did you see the news last night, uh, Jonathan, uh, Vancouver Island, like they've, there's a golf course there and they've had a couple of, uh, domestic pigs that have escaped from a neighboring property that have been there for a few months now. And they're up in arms about it. They're these there's, there's three pigs that have had a couple of piglets And they're figuring there's hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage already. They're showing the, the rutted up greens and they don't know what to do. So it just shows how you need to manage things properly and, and get rid of the invasive before they take hold. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Well, I think we're going to see that in Canada too. I mean, we're we're having pockets of wild boar that have become quite established in certain areas in Canada and, you know, and I know Alberta it's on the radar. Uh, you know, I think they've basically, you can shoot as many as you want and, uh, and and with good reasons. And I think you looked at other jurisdictions that have an overabundance of wild boar. Uh, it just doesn't mix very well with agriculture. No. So it's uh, what it,
2: we do here is uh, since as the hunting let's see, you are responsible for any crop damage. The hunters here they draw electric fencing around cornfields, and definitely every golf course has electric fencing around it. Um but yeah. Nobody can afford that and uh, so yeah but so, i have to say since this night vision technology is legal for boar the numbers have really come down like before that we were say, we were basically saying we do what we can and we shoot as many as we can get a hold of but we, it was never it never seemed to make a real dent in the population but now it's this night vision stuff seems to be very effective Like in my hunting lease, I, even last year, I, I had maybe 20 or 25 boar and I was quite happy about it. And uh, because I only lease a forested area where they can't do any damage, they do the damage. They live during the day in my forest and at night they go out to and raid the crops, which is not on my lease. So I don't give a damn. Um, but now my neighbor with the, with the, who has the fields in his hand? Hunting territory. He uses night vision and he basically picks them all off. And I've noticed this year, I I have very few left in my in my little forest there.
1: So, so is wild boar uh, considered a, a good table fare in Germany? Like, is it oh, sold yeah, along with? Absolutely. Oh yeah, okay. Yes,
2: it's more tasty than domestic pork. It's definitely yeah has more That's taste cool. and better texture of the meat and.
1: Yeah. So in, in, are other European countries uh, very similar to Germany as far as the sort of wildlife management structure goes? Yeah, by and large,
2: yes. Um, England for sure. Uh, um, it's all about the land ownership there too. Um, France seems to have a bit of both, a bit of a license system Um maybe because they still have more public land. I, I don't really know. Um, but there is private and public, licensed and leased uh, there. Uh, Austria is exactly like Germany. Switzerland is different. Switzerland uh, and also Italy are places, well, not all of it, but Switzerland is mostly licensed uh, licenses. Where where you obtain a license, uh, much closer to BC in a way, um, and uh, northern Italy is is more like Germany and Austria, and the south is is uh, based on licenses. And oh, uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, it's all lease based. It's all territorial.
1: Yeah, I can see the advantages. I mean, I, I look at the system we have here in in uh, British Columbia, which you know isn't necessarily reflective of North America, because I mean a lot of North American jurisdictions are largely privately owned, right? You have, you know, like yeah. if you go to many places in the states, it'd be very similar to Europe, where you lease a yeah. piece of land, and yes, you have to buy a license, and the and the animals do belong to the to the state, not the landowner, but the access belongs to the landowner. Right. So that would be very similar. But in in British Columbia here, we obviously have a system where we have like over 90% of the land base is is public land and uh, there's lots of access. Uh, But I think one of the issues we have in British Columbia is, as you well know, Christian, we have a very urban population here despite how wild the province is overall with most of our population residing in the lower mainland and southern Vancouver Island. And what that's resulted in is a utter lack of interest in proper wildlife management in this province and uh you know it's it's really coming to a head now we're really seeing that we have had uh, an, an overabundance of predators in this province for you know probably 25 years and there is some government involvement in trying to manage wolves in areas where there's caribou um that's that's the one thing we see but Overall, the, the amount of investment British Columbia has put into the management of wildlife has been a pittance compared to anywhere else, in, anywhere else in North America. And uh, I think it's actually a, one of the great shames of our province. And I do think the fundamental difference is, is that in Germany, like you say, you have these hunters who have a vested interest on all of these huntable lands and want to manage wildlife so that there is an abundance and in british columbia we have a small percentage of the population that hunts that has really little say we 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 utterly rely on the government to create policies and take actions that will promote proper wildlife management and we don't have governments that are particularly interested in doing that so it's uh, i can sort of see the advantages and disadvantages of both mm-hmm. systems but I, mean, I like the freedom we have here you can take your hunter's training do the proper you know qualifying steps to become a hunter in British Columbia, then you just have this a, a tremendous freedom to hunt and, and really have a wilderness experience. But at the same time, that should be coupled with, uh, you know, a, a proper level of attention being placed on on the management of wildlife, and uh, we we don't have that here. So it's no, yeah, it's not at all. got good and bad aspects to it. But I right now in British Columbia, your system sounding pretty dang good.
0: <laughs> well, you you look at like I've got some numbers up from uh, some research I did a couple of years ago, and when you look at a state like Utah, for example, who puts three hundred and eighty six dollars and thirty six cents per kilometer squared into fish and wildlife. Washington is $831.52 per square kilometer. BC, $36.08. Yeah. That, it's, that's, you know, that's $7 a person. Yeah. That's a $7.36 yeah. a person yeah. that we put in. And we have 1,800 yeah. big game yeah. species. I
1: think most states, like the Western states, that would be somewhat comparable to British Columbia, although they don't have the diversity of species we have, I, uh, you know, most per, per capita and, and a lot of them are more populous than, than British Columbia, but per capita, you know, we're looking at well into the double digits, usually $30, 40 50 $60 dollars per person. So British mm-hmm. Columbia, as far as the, the funding goes wildlife, is, is uh, at, at the absolute bottom of the barrel, and, uh, yeah, and it shows. Our, our
0: closest is Washington at uh, $21.67 per person, and we'll, they're they're three times us. Yeah, so that's we've that's, got they're spending three times as much dollars. per person as as we do in the province here. So and they got uh, seven million people. We got four and a half five. Right, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah,
2: and I but I remember a time when I first used to come to BC when I was a student and things
1: uh, in the eighties.
2: It was quite different. There was a, quite a density of of game wardens back then and conservation officers. Um. And what I really uh, have to say about BC and Canada in general is what we don't have here, what our system doesn't favor or doesn't generate, is the the professional wildlife biologists that you have. Those are obviously employed by the government. But these are top-notch people. They are scientifically trained. They they obtain data. um, All the... I said I would say the international wildlife bio, wildlife science is basically advanced by by these biologists in, in North America and in, and the same goes for BC. Um, nothing comes out of Europe because it's basic. The government is, you know, apart from what I described, it's hands off. They don't get involved unless a species is red listed. Then they uh, they come on board and they develop programs, but they they couldn't care less about red deer or anything. You know, that is just let the hunters deal with it. We've, we have nothing to do with it. And I, and I think in North America, that's very different. Uh, you have yeah. incredible capacity in wildlife biology, wildlife ecology. It's just too bad that uh, the system is so uh, squeezed or out of funding. You know that's, the, well, and yeah. I think in the '80s uh, there was way more money available for it. I recall there was a there used to be a, a game warrants in every town, and and well, and I've even what, during the twenty years I was there, they, they were becoming less and less, and offices closed here and there, and you wouldn't even when you were out hunting, you wouldn't see any any more. I think that's, it's been really starved of funds and, but it hasn't always been that way. And so I, it's too bad. It, it's an yeah. incredible resource. And when I look at things like moose management in B.C., I mean, that's just the history of mismanagement. And, uh, that wouldn't, that, that's not necessary. You know, the habitat is there. You just have to manage it properly and you would have moose.
1: Yeah, I I agreed. You know, Christian, your, your comment about the wildlife biologists in North America and in British Columbia, I I totally agree with that. I think we've got some absolute top shelf biologists here. Uh, You know, they work with the organizations we work with and they're, they're top shelf. Uh, And if they were fully allowed to implement the management strategies that, that they know would work, I think we'd have a lot more wildlife on the ground. I think there's just, you know, you can have the most talented people in the field, but if they're not given the tools to use, yeah, to to yeah. make change, then it doesn't matter. And I think that's sort of the situation in the province. And you talk about the 80s, like back in the 80s, like 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were active predator management campaigns in the yes. province, right? Yeah. And, and there was no shortage of predators. You can manage predators and have a lot of predators, but the consequence of proper predator management is you do have a, you end up with a robust population of ungulates, right? So you kind of get the best of all possible worlds. And Uh, you know, really since the end of the 80s, other than, like I say, for the, you know, caribou areas where they do some some wolf management, uh, you know, the government has, uh, you know, completely, uh, uh, you know, basically avoided any responsibility towards the proper management of predators. And I think that's, that along with, you know, some major land use issues on the province, uh, on the landscape here, I think have really resulted in, in uh what we what the situation we have today which is declining ungulate populations almost province-wide and that actually extends to our fisheries too now that's a whole other podcast but uh we 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 again in british columbia are blessed with sort of an unbelievable bounty of fish species and fish habitat if only we would manage it properly and and uh, again we have great scientists and and societies that really do a lot of good work but um when when you have so many urban people that just are so disconnected from these aspects of British Columbia, the political will just isn't there, and I think that's really what's happened.
2: What, what happened to this new movement of these urban people that just want to eat wildlife and not industrially produced meat and go out and Wait, shoot their own deer? You have know, uh, well, that, I that is a big know? movement in Vancouver, and and, uh, and it's. Uh, it's big enough to catch the government's attention, no? Huh?
1: Well, I think there is that. I mean, I think the interest in hunting has definitely increased over the last few years. And I think people are coming to terms with the fact that, you know, if you're going to eat meat, um, you know, hunting sustainable, like the harvestable surplus of sustainably managed wildlife is a good way to do it. That That is definitely becoming more of a thing here, for sure. But it's still a very small percentage of the population overall. And I think that's, that's you know, one issue. But uh, you know, I always find it funny. Like you'll talk to people that are that are totally against hunting, yet the only salmon they'll eat are wild salmon. They would never yeah, eat a farm salmon. Of course. You know, and it's like I. But they, yeah. they seem to be completely unable to see the uh, the paradox in that.
2: Yeah, that's the same here. Um, I can assure you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happens with you know, as as the as the globe becomes increasingly urbanized, it's going to be yeah. more and more difficult, I think, to uh To keep proper wildlife and fisheries management uh a priority for the people that actually have power to manage, which is in most like in north America at least is the government right because you know you, you you know hunters can know what they would do, but y- y- your hands are tied because you don 't have any any you know legal response like legal ability to implement the possible changes that would be required to uh you know, to maximize, uh, you know, our management. So it's, it's a frustrating situation, but anyway, yeah, yeah, that's that's just what it is here, but yeah. But I mean, there's hope there's hope for us here too. I think we just need (laughs) to keep pushing and, you know, we're part of the, both Steve and I are intimately involved with the Wild Sheep Society of BC and, you know, it's organizations like that. I think that, you know, we just keep pushing and and trying to get the government's attention and, and, uh, yeah, we're trying to, and, and this one campfire that you're Part of now a Christian, this is a whole endeavor to to basically reach out to the you know non-hunting public, not anti-hunters obviously, but just non-hunting public, and and just educate them a little bit more on on hunting. So we that's what we're trying to do.
2: I think that's a, a great effort, and that's the only way to go. You have to try and educate people. Uh, I yeah. I, I don't know how else to do it. There there used to be an initiative to increase the number of hunters in BC. I don't know where that went, but that would also, you know, be another venue. That, that,
1: that would help. You know, it's interesting. You look at states like Montana and Montana is just, you know, it, it's spilling over with wildlife in most places. I hunted down there a few years ago and I was just amazed at how many animals I saw. And not just huntable species, you know, birds of prey, everything. It's just fantastic. Uh, and they've got a far higher number of hunters on a, on a smaller landscape and yet they have more wildlife, yeah. you know, riddle me that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they do have reservoirs of pub or private land that maybe don't get hunted, which can help keep some populations a little more abundant, but uh, they also take wildlife management a lot more seriously. So yeah. if we can get more people hunting, more people interested in proper wildlife management, I mean, BC, uh, I think has, a, has a really bright future. It's just a matter of getting there. But I, before we go here, we're a little over an hour here, Christian. Um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, like you're retired now, so what are your plans? Like, you're what, what are you going to do now?
2: Uh, I have a number of things. I, uh, a year ago, I uh, I leased a new hunting territory, so I am partners in in one around where I live, um, and the one that my dad used to have with. A couple other guys and then i have one just by myself now with uh that has uh, big game so i have red deer i have fellow deer i have boar i have roe deer and uh, i'm really excited about it because it's the first time in my life that i'm only i'm the only one uh, leasing it so i am in charge i can decide what which animal to take and what to do and how to manage it and and it has it keeps me busy i love it so much i put salt licks in i put feed plots in i uh, i have uh, trail six trail cameras set up um and i'm just loving every morning the first thing when i wake up is get on my my smartphone and check the pictures from the trail cameras that were recorded that night i I love it. It's, it's uh, great fun. Oh, and putting up tree stands, of course, and, and organizing driven hunts. And I, I, That's one thing that I'm going to do. Uh, another thing is I still would like to come and spend my summers in BC. As you know, we still have a place uh, here. We're there. And uh, we want to spend the summers in BC and, and the winters over here it would fit well with the hunting seasons too. Just about when you get winter, we we start here, over here. Um, So, and I, as you know, I enjoy fishing. So that's another thing that I can't do very well here. The opportunities here are extremely limited compared to what BC offers. So um, I also need to renovate this house here. Um, and I still do a little bit of consulting contracts here and there on the side. So I have lots of stuff to keep me busy.
1: Well, that sounds like it, Christian. Well, I, I <laughs> want to wish you you're you know the best on your well-deserved retirement. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to uh, when you come back to Canada. We definitely have to get together. And uh, since you left, I bought a cabin on Duncan Lake and the fishing there can be quite good oh yeah so uh you know you have an open invitation let me know when you're coming and uh we'll try to we'll try to get together great i
2: will take you up on it and likewise if you should ever make it to germany or if you would like to specifically for that purpose i'd love to have you hunt on my my lease and we'll find a nice red stag or roebuck for you or a boar whatever you or fellow deer i don't know whether you're interested in those um we'll find something for you
1: all right. Well, I, I'll likely show up at your doorstep here soon then, Christian. Yeah,
2: okay. Good. All right. <laughs> Looking forward well, th-
1: to that. Well, thanks so much. And again, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, to have this conversation with us.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been fun.